0: Good morning, if you would turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5, I am so grateful to you for your sacrificial giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Even as we are looking at our passage today, it reminds me from a text in Philippians 4:18 that we saw so several years ago where Paul says I have received full payment and more I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent and here's how he describes those those gifts that were used for the great commission a fragrant offering a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God we're going to see that in our passage today but it reminded me of Fisherville that we are just a couple hundred dollars away from our $22,000 goal. For those of you who are visiting the the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, uh, goes to the North American Mission Board. 100% of the money goes on the ground as they are planting churches in North America uh, in the hard places. And and so we're just a couple of hundred dollars away from reaching that goal and we haven't even gotten to Easter Sunday. So I'm so grateful to you uh, and your response Uh, to the call to the Great Commission. I want to remind you that we have service tonight at 6 o'clock and Friday we have a Good Friday service here at 6 p.m. Please pray for that and if you can bring uh, some friends with you that perhaps uh, have never heard the gospel or perhaps are looking into the claims of Christ. We would love to have them uh, visiting with us on, on Friday night. Well if you would look with me In Ephesians 5, we're just looking at a couple of verses this morning. A a short passage, but a power-packed passage. One of the, perhaps the highest command in all of the Scripture is found right here in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God. That Greek word is mimetai. Mimic. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering, same word that we saw in Philippians 4, 18, a fragrant offering, and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that I have the privilege to preach to your beloved children this morning. And I would ask that you would open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, that we might behold your grandeur, your greatness, supremely displayed in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. And may it have a transforming effect on our affections, our hearts, our minds, and our wills. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, next month is Heather's and my 22nd wedding anniversary. That's right, twenty-seven. <laughs> they, they said it wouldn't last. And we went to Maui on our honeymoon. And on the second day in Maui, which was the third day of our, of our marriage... We took a public catamaran from the island of Maui to the island of Lanai. And so we get on this boat, and, and the first thing I noticed, back in the 80s, you remember I had WWJD bracelets and WWJD uh, T-shirts? And, and so I get on the boat, and the, one of the boat hands had on a WWJD bracelet. And so I found that intriguing, and, and so I began to observe this fellow. and, and what I noticed when he would get with his buddies on the boat during that trip to Lanai, they spoke about the most profane things you could ever envision. Uh, it was horrible to hear the kind of language they were using and the, and the subject matter uh, of their conversations. Well, towards the end of the day, we are we're taking the catamaran back. I had prayed for an opportunity to to speak to him. And the Lord opened up that door because he noticed that I had on a Maui dive shop t-shirt. I had purchased it at a Maui di- dive shop. And, and so he asked me, uh, he said, Maui dive shop. He said, uh, have you ever been diving? And I said, no, I've never been diving in my life. He said, man, that's false advertising. I looked down in his WWJD bracelet, and I said, do you ever do what Jesus would do? And he blushed beet red. He was caught red-handed. And I said, brother, that is false advertising. Well, that is a biblical question. Believe it or not, what would Jesus do? 1 Peter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called, for Christ Also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so it is a biblical thing to ask the question, what would Jesus do and then follow in his steps? But that question alone is damnable. It would lead to damnation. It certainly was for that new friend of mine. On the catamaran but truth be known it's true for us as well how many of us want our judgment day to be rendered on the basis of how well we followed Jesus example that's bad news if you think about it if you're truly honest how many of us would want our judgment to be based on how well we conformed our lives to the person of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't have to be. And that's the good news. Because Christ came as our substitute before he came as our example. And so the first question is not WWJD. The first question is WHJD. What has Jesus done? Peter would go on to say in that same passage in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He bore our sins on the tree. And now with the full knowledge and belief that our salvation has been secured in the person of Jesus Christ and out of gratitude, out of joy, out of peace of conscience for that, we seek to follow him as our example uh, and as our model for the Christian life. And, And so Jesus can be imitated only because we have trusted in what he has already done for us. Herman Bavik has written, if he were only an example, he would frighten us away. He would indeed accuse us, if that's all he was. But he can be our example because in the greatest demonstration of love that the world has ever seen, he gave himself up for us so that we might become fit for the kingdom of God, so that we might become the children of God. And that brings us to the first point in chapter 5, verse 1. Imitate God, as a result of this, as the father's children. Because of what Jesus has done, securing your place in the family, now you have responsibility. There are family rules to imitate God as father. Now look with me in verse 1. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now even though there is a chapter division here, again, chapter divisions were added later, somewhere in the 15th or 16th chapter, uh, of century A.D. And so this is an unfortunate chapter division. But this word therefore tells us that what he's saying here is closely related to what we just looked at last week and the week before that. Paul is essentially summarizing in verses 1 to 2 the previous section, starting in chapter 4, verse 25. And he's also preparing us for what lies ahead in the rest of the letter. This is kind of like a, um, a turning point, but it's, it's what you might call a Janus uh, passage you, we, we, we call the first month of the year January because it looks back on the uh, the previous year and it looks forward to the, the following year. Well this is one of those Janus passages it looks back, but it also looks forward now this entire section chapters four or in verse twenty five all the way to chapter five, verse two, Paul gives us thirteen commands thirteen imperatives. Eleven of those are positive, and two of them are negative. They are prohibitions, if you will. And yet even these statistics I just gave you do not reflect the fact that no fewer than six evil reactions, notice these in verse 31, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice are banned that is, are forbidden by the single imperative, be put away. And so, six negative emotions, six sinful emotions are banned by this single verb, be put away. Chapter 4, verse 31. While the three opposite virtues, notice in verse 32 kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness are enjoined by the single verb, be he says be be kind tender-hearted and forgiving and so the statistics on the commands don't tell the full story in other words none of us can read this text not a single one of us without recognizing that paul is deeply concerned to see concrete dramatic behavioral change in the life of those who've been redeemed in Christ. As he said in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. We are God's poema. That's the word where we get the word poem. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We We are the gospel on display to the nations as God sums up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. There's nothing here about antinomianism, where you just kind of have this greasy grace and now you have fire insurance. When you experience the grace of God in Jesus Christ by faith, it changes your life. And now he is giving us the marching orders for what this change should specifically look like. But this behavior change isn't just turning over a new leaf. I I see every January, people go to the gym who've turned over a new leaf. Uh, They've committed themselves to working out and getting into shape and then you get to February and and the gym is empty. That's what turning over a new leaf does for you. No, these commands are interwoven and they are grounded By theological truths and gospel power. So, for instance, let's just review for those of you that haven't been with us. Why must we speak the truth to each other? Chapter 4, verse 25. Because we're members of one another. We are interwoven. We are members of one. We are one body. And we are responsible to one another. We need each other. There's a reciprocity. We are members. Why must anger not be allowed to fester? We saw that in verses 26 and 27. Because it gives the devil an opportunity. It gives the devil a foothold. Why must our speech build up? We saw that in verse 29, right? Because the risen Christ... And he uses the same verb there in Ephesians 2, is building up his church as the dwelling place of God by his spirit, Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22, and the various members of this church are engaged in the construction business. It's interesting that he uses the same verb, to build up with our words as what is happening in the church at large. Our speaking is to give grace. We saw that last week in Ephesians 4, 29. Why is our speaking to be a means of grace? Giving grace to others because God has poured out his grace on us. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. And as those who've received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are now, we are custodians, we are conduits of that grace And it is to manifest itself in our tongues. Why should we not have corrupt words and malice that grieve the Holy Spirit? Why are these to be banned? Because the Spirit has sealed us. He has sealed us, securing the church as God's property for the day of redemption. You see, Paul always gives commands And then he gives you the theological reasons and motivations for the commands. Why must we forgive? We saw that in chapter 4, verse 32. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. And now here in chapter 5, why are we called to be imitators of God? He tells us because we are beloved and adopted into the family of God. We are dearly loved children. There's no greater motivation than that. And of all the commands in Scripture, I believe this might be the highest mountain peak command that you'll see. Wouldn't you agree? Be imitators of God. Now, this is the only place in the Scriptures where we are explicitly called to Imitate God. In this particular case, it's God the Father. But the idea is certainly found in the Old Testament. Repeatedly, for instance, we see in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. Why are God's people to be holy? Because their God, their Redeemer, their Father is holy. And then Jesus even picks up that pattern. Uh, In the Gospels. So, for instance, in Matthew 5 48, he says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, what a command. Now, Jesus is not giving us a new way to salvation, He's showing us the standard there. Uh, The whole point of the Gospels, right, is to show us why we need a Messiah who will be crucified and raised from the grave. And so speaking to the self-righteous and to the religious leaders of the day, he says, you must be perfect. That's the standard. And, And throughout the gospels, you see that we fall short. And that's why we need Christ to die on the cross to take the judgment that we deserve. Or in Luke 6, 36, he says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And none of us can attain to that standard. There's limits to our capacity for mercy, isn't there? Now, this imitation obviously doesn't take place on what they would call the metaphysical plane. In other words, there are attributes of God that we can't imitate. Uh, Theologians call them incommunicable. Attributes. if you want a fancy term. These are attributes, unique qualities for which no counterpart can be found in a human. So for instance, uh, the Baptist Catechism, uh, in its definition of God, says God is a spirit. He is infinite. None of us are infinite. We're finite. He is eternal. None of us are eternal. And he is un. Changeable. None of us are immutable. Those are what theologians call incommunicable attributes. That's not what Paul's calling us to. He's calling us to what theologians call communicable attributes. Those attributes where there is a counterpart found in humans. This imitation clearly takes place in the sphere of ethics. And such an imitation is possible and only possible because we, as believers, are his beloved children. We've been endowed by the Spirit, with the Spirit, to live out the life of an adopted joint heir with Jesus Christ. And this becomes the basis by which we imitate God we're given the Spirit who begins to work faith, hope, and love in us. And and so this language of dearly loved children is clearly the language of adoption. Of course, Paul has already referred to adoption in Ephesians 1.5. We have been predestined for adoption. And, And it also speaks to the love that we have been that we have experienced from God. It is because of His great love for us, Ephesians 2:4, that He made us alive in Christ even when we were dead. In Ephesians 3, he prayed that we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love. And, and, and this command is the capstone for all of the positive commands we saw in Ephesians 4:25 and following that give explicit instruction as to what it means to put on the new self. We saw all of those commands the last two weeks. So the new self is the adopted child of God. That's what the new self is. He says, put on the new self, and this is what it is. As the new self, you are an adopted joint heir with Christ. This means that the old self, that we are to put off is the mentality of the former spiritual orphans that we were. It's clearly that he's using adoption language here. And so the new self is the reality that we have now been adopted into his family. There are now family rules. It's not by keeping these rules that we get adopted. We get adopted by grace, and now there are family rules the old self is the old spiritual orphan self so for instance let's go back through this again falsehood chapter 4 verse 25 is the way of the spiritual orphan sinful anger ephesians 4:26 is the way of the spiritual orphan what does that mean that means when i am demonstrating sinful anger I'm thinking like my old spiritual orphan self. I'm not thinking like the fact that I'm now a child of God. I'm reverting back to the time when I was a spiritual orphan. Stealing is a spiritual orphan mentality. Ephesians 4:28. Corrupting talk, unwholesome talk. Ephesians 4:29. That is the tongue of the spiritual orphan that we are called to put off. Paul is teaching us what family rules look like. What does it look like to be a child of God? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. All of those are spiritual orphan attitudes. And so when you find yourself acting in the old self, remind yourself... That's not who I am. I'm no longer an orphan. I am a beloved child of God, and I am to look like my father. And this is so important for us to understand when it comes uh, to to motivating our obedience. It's easy to try to motivate someone to new obedience by guilt or fear. It's easy to do that as a parent as well. But that's not how you motivate sons and daughters. That's not how you motivate those who are already in the family. Indeed, think about this. Those who are motivated by shame. Perhaps growing up, you were motivated by shame. Perhaps you find yourselves doing that in your own um, parenting responsibilities. But those who are motivated by shame are actually more vulnerable to sin. Because after a while, as time unfolds, the acuteness of the shame begins to wear off. And so the allure of the sin becomes stronger. Many church kids who were raised under that kind of teaching and parenting, once they leave home, they flee. They flee the church and they flee the people of God, because the, at this point the guilt has worn off, and now the allure of sin is even stronger. Or how about being motivated by fear? That works in sports, perhaps. It does not work in the kingdom of God. It may motivate for a time, but ultimately it makes us bitter towards God. When we motivate by fear, It makes us view God in a way that he's not. Yes, we're to fear God, but that's a healthy reverence for God. Much more productive than shame or fear is Paul's approach. You are, he says, dearly loved children. You are family, your sons, your daughters. You have a place at this table you will never be unadopted again. Your place in the family is secure. Now here are the family rules. Here are the family rules. And with that said, the second command in this passage, verse two, gives us even more detail as to what that looks like. And so you can say verse one is a more general command and verse two, he's going to get into specifics. And so the second command is found in verse two, "Walk in love as Christ redeemed." Notice we in verse two, he says, "And walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering." And sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to note that word walk again. In the, in the first century, that word was used for behavior, lifestyle, the way one conducted himself in the world. If you look back in chapter 4, verse 1, we see the first time that word is used, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then in verse 17, he speaks about your former life. When you walked as the Gentiles did in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding. In other words, you must no longer be controlled by your prior spiritual orphan-like pattern of behavior. That's what he's saying. You're to walk worthy of the calling. You're not to walk as you once did in your former spiritual orphan-like behavior. That's not the way, he says, you learned Christ. Notice in chapter 4, verse 20, that is, not, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth that is in Jesus. We're to walk worthy of the calling. And this is the second command of this text, but it's also the 13th command of this passage, starting in chapter 4, verse 25. And so the entire passage, for those of you that have been visiting, are visiting with us today, has been predicated on these early commands in verses 22 to 24, where we're to put off the old self, that's the old spiritual orphan self, and we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And by the renewing of our minds, we put on the new self, which is the adopted self, the the one who's been adopted into the family of God. And so the key there is the renewal of the spirit of our minds. The the war is fought in the mind, isn't it? War is always fought in the mind. And, And the way our minds are renewed is to reflect... On the theological truths that Paul has been weaving throughout. Again, this is not this notion where I pull up myself by my bootstraps and turn over a new leaf and flex my ethical muscles. He's already reminded us we are members of one another, we're responsible agents with each other, we're members of one another, we've been sealed. By the Spirit of God, God lives in us. God dwells in us. We are forgiven. We have been forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, in Christ. We are beloved children. We are adopted joint heirs with God. And then here, we are loved by Christ. Verse 2, who became a sacrifice for us. All the imperatives of Scripture, there is no exception, are grounded by grace. Even the Ten Commandments, what is the preface of the Ten Commandments? Preface of the Ten I, I am the Lord God, I brought you out of the house of Israel, out of the bondage of slavery. That's the preface of the Ten Commandments. It comes in the context of redemption. But as well, to renew our minds... Is, requires us to reflect on Paul's Trinitarian theology here. You can't get past the Trinitarian theology. God the Father is the one who adopted us, right? God the Son is the one who secured our salvation by giving himself up for us. And God the Spirit is the one who seals us. All three persons of the Godhead love you. And they have invested everything for your eternal salvation and security. And and so this is an expansion of verse one. Verse two is clearly a specific expansion on verse one. Verse one is the general command, and this is more specific and it gives us an example of what it means to imitate God. In other words, those who imitate God Are those who walk in love. You could say love is kind of like the umbrella. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Notice it's not fruits of the Spirit, it's singular. Drives me crazy when I hear someone say the fruits of the Spirit. It is love. And then he fills out what that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. All of those. Are expressions of what it means to walk in love. In other words, those who imitate God are those who walk in love. We are to love as Christ loves us, and we are to walk this way because Christ loves us. Jesus' love was supremely displayed when he gave himself for us. Now, let me show you something quite remarkable here. I had not seen that until I got into this study of Ephesians. That verb there, I want you to just stay with me for a second. Put on your thinking cap just for a second. In verse 2, he gave himself up. That verb, that very word, is used in chapter 4, verse 19. Just a few uh, verses earlier. Notice in Ephesians 4, 19, he's speaking about our... Previous, unregenerate, unconverted self. He's not describing some special class of wicked heathen here. He's describing you. He's describing me before we were saved. And here's what he says. They, that is those who have not been converted to Christ, have become callous, and notice, have given themselves up. They've given themselves up. That's the same verb that we see in chapter 5, verse 2. They've given themselves up to sensuality. Now, sometimes we relegate sensuality to sexual sin, and it certainly involves that. But sensuality is just a lack of restraint, a lack of self-control being given over to our sinister desires. It's really self-love on display. Paul says that is the state of every non-Christian. They have given themselves up to sensuality. And so to learn Christ is to learn his example to follow. And what does he do here? He gave himself up for others. What that seems to be saying is that we're going to give ourselves up for something. You're going to give your life up for something or someone. And really, there's only two options. You're going to essentially live your life for you and yours and self-love or you're going to give yourself up for the redemptive good of others because that is the way of your savior who gave himself up for you for your salvation now now even though scripture often portrays the Father as the one giving up the Son, for in that so, for instance, in that very well-known verse that most of us know, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right, his only begotten son, so that those who would believe in him would have eternal life and not perish. But there are other places where Jesus says he gives his life up of his own accord. He says, no one takes my life from me. I give it up of my own accord. John chapter uh, 10. And he says it's specifically for us. Think about that. For us. For those who in our old selves naturally give ourselves up to sin. He gave himself up to redeem us. And Paul says, this is a fragrant offering. This is a fragrant offering. Notice he says he gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, this idea of fragrant offering, we talked about it just a few minutes ago in Philippians 4. It was used metaphorically for God's acceptance of a sacrifice. I mean, as early as the book of Genesis, we look at Genesis many years ago, this expression, fragrant offering, or maybe the older translations read sweet savor, maybe your translation reads sweet savor, is used metaphorically to convey the Lord's pleasure in sacrifices. Sweet smelling aroma, sweet savor, a fragrant offering, Uh, sweet... Aroma, because these sacrifices were offered according to his will and consequently his readiness to turn his wrath from those who worship him through such sacrifices. Paul also, as I said, applies this imagery in Philippians 4.18 to refer to these these offerings that were given. They were fragrant offerings. Romans 12, he implies it when he says we're to to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God, fully uh, pleasing to him. You see, Paul's entire... Now, this is very important for us. Paul's entire theology of sin, his entire theology of salvation, makes it clear that any act of service, any act of worship offered by us must derive its pleasant aroma before God from our union by grace through faith in the well-pleasing Son. Someone asked me recently, why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because we are saying when we pray in Jesus' name, we are coming to you only because of our union in the only well-pleasing Son. There's only one person that's ever been said by God, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it's not us. But when we come to the Father with our gifts, with our sacrifices, with our obedience, with our worship, and we come through the Son, it is a fragrant offering to the Father. The one who loved us and through his Son penalized our sin deflecting his holy wrath from us once for all. and Paul is saying even though Jesus gave himself up for us in a a one of a kind thing that cannot be repeated, it is the example of the kind of life we are to live as his children. We give ourselves away for the redemptive good of others. And in this case, it's to walk in love as Christ loved us. Apart from 1 John 2, 6, it says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And apart from 1 John 3, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Apart from these two verses, there's only one aspect of Jesus that is to be held up for imitation. And it is this kind of sacrificial love where you absorb the debt of others for the redemptive good of those very people. Paul says that's what love is. In fact, John said the same thing in, in 1 John 4. He says, now this is love. He doesn't give us a definition. He gives us an event. Not that you love God. You didn't. But He loved you and He gave his Son as a propitiation for your sins. That is, in the Son of God, God's wrath was satisfied through the cross. And he says, therefore, beloved, if God so loved you in this way, so you ought to love one another. That becomes the definition of love for Christians. Anything else is a parody. It's costume jewelry. It's what many have called cruciform love. Cruciform is a Latin word which means love in the the shape of a cross. Cruci, cross, form, shape. Christian love, which we are to walk in, is essentially me being so committed to your redemptive good that I absorb the debt that you owe me so that you you and I might be reconciled so that you might benefit from the grace of God. John writes of this cruciform love just before Jesus went to the cross. What a fitting day to even speak about this on the week before we celebrate Easter, uh, when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that very week that he made his entry into Jerusalem, Uh, He met with his disciples, and John 13 says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's love. He loved them to the end. And then he commences to wash their nasty feet. Now, just consider the group whose feet he washes. There in that place was a man that's going to betray him. There in that place is a man that's going to deny him. You have complainers. You have cowards who flee the scene. You have doubters. You have those who boast. All of them are there. All of them are characterized by these things more than humility, love, and service. Let me just tell you something. I don't need the Holy Spirit to love you if you're humble and you're a servant. But I need the Holy Spirit to love you when you're all these other things. And that's exactly who was with Jesus that night. And yet it says, John says, He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And Paul is saying, walk in that kind of love. That's incredible. It's incredible. He did not, get this, he did not allow their sins, their flaws, or their character and personality defects to shrink his love. Who wants to be compared to Jesus on the day of judgment? This is the kind of love, though, he's called us to. Thank God, our judgment's not going to be based on how well we love. It's going to be based on the fact that we have one who loved perfectly. A love that drove him to absorb the debt they owed so that they might be saved. That's what the institution of the entire Lord's Supper was about. And you you see that in John 13. Uh, It was... The beginning of the end, which was the end or the beginning of the beginning, you might say. So on this Palm Sunday that commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, let us remember, as he's instituting that Last Supper, Jesus gave central place to the role as the substitutionary sacrifice who would save his people, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five 25, by his blood. He gave his flesh for the life of the world, John 6, verse 65. He laid down his life for us, 1 John verse 3, uh, 3, 16. He was delivered up for us, Romans 8, 32. He died for our sins, Romans 5, verse 8. And as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 16, And he was delivered up for the church, Ephesians 5.25. The goal of substitution, Christ substituting himself for us, is that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and be brought back to God, 1 Peter 3, verse 18. And Paul says, walk in love as Jesus loved us and gave himself for our sins a remarkable calling and in today's climate what happens is if I don't like what's going on with a few people in the church I go to another church and that's just the antithesis of what Paul is saying Paul is saying we're on display actually those people that are troubling you are an opportunity for you to to give up yourself for their redemptive good. Let me close with some practical suggestions on just some really specific act, specifics as to what this love looks like, and then we'll close. And I get a lot of this list from Paul Tripp's book, Broken Down House. It's not original with me, but I've always found this very helpful. First of all, this kind of love we've been called to means not keeping yourself busy, so busy with you and yours that you have no practical time to love others. As Paul would say, that is not the way you learn Christ. Paul, or Jesus, was not so absorbed with his own own life that he did not have time for others. We, We see that throughout the Gospels. Second, it means being committed to knowing people. Because you can minister only in very limited ways to those whom you do not know. And so a practical way to think about that is and we have people that are remarkable at this here at Fisherville, you see a visitor and you make a beeline for them. Because you you remember the time you visited and how uncomfortable it was to be here alone but you now are following Christ in his love. So there's a new kind of way about you. Third, it means being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and the struggles of others. Of course, again, Jesus is the example of that. He lived in eternal bliss and he humiliated himself. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant because of our needs and our struggles. And you've been there too. You you have been through those times and you needed a brother or sister and they complicated their lives to invest in you. Fourth, it means being willing to share your physical resources with others. Fifth, it means being perseverant and patient even when love is not returned. That's hard, isn't it? But here's here's what I'm saying when I become impatient, when my love is not returned. I'm saying I've made it about me. That's what I'm saying. When I get impatient with someone, or I do something for them, they don't thank me. You ever been frustrated with them? Well, Scripture says, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient. Six, it means actively looking for places where you can function as one, one of God's tools of love. Because when we're talking about love here, we're talking about gospel love. We're, we're not just talking about some kind of social love or you know, where we're just concerned about someone's physical needs. Physical needs are important. But we recognize it does no one any good if they do not understand and know the gospel. And so... We, we, we seek to look for ways to function as God's tools of love. Again, uh, one of the things we do on Mondays is we pray that God would provide us opportunities that week to share the gospel. And, and so not only does God provide those opportunities, but you tend to be more mindful of those opportunities when you pray for them. So make that a commitment. Lord, I want to be your tool of love because I am called right here, uh, to walk in love as Christ loved me and gave uh, gave himself up for me. So I wanna give myself up for someone else. Lord, this week, give me an opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, give me boldness by your spirit to share the gospel of love with this person. It means fleeing the temptation to be judgmental and self-righteous and critical. You've all been hurt and stung by that, probably by people in this church. The Christian life has lived in the matrix of spiritual conflict. But thank God our Savior was not that way. And we've been called to walk in love as Christ our Savior walked. It means... Overlooking minor offenses and fighting the temptation to become bitter or cynical. If you don't fight that temptation, you will become bitter and cynical because you will be sinned against in the church. You will be. Every person will be sinned against. And that's God's strategy. He's growing you up. He's teaching you to humble yourself. He's teaching you to die to self. He's teaching you to love those who hurt you in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It means moving beyond simply surrounding yourself with people who you find comfortable and likable. Listen, it's easy to do that. I was in a college football locker room for six years, and outright pagans loved each other more than oftentimes i see in Sunday school classes. They had so much in common with each other, but you know, that kind of commonality does not need, you don't need the Holy Spirit to love like that. Jesus went to the knuckleheads, the disciples. He didn't have a whole lot in common with them. <laughs> have you ever noticed that? And they didn't have a whole lot in common with him. He went to the tax collectors. He went to the sinners. He went to the prostitutes. It means, as Paul would say in Romans 12, 21, overcoming evil with good. That's radical, isn't it? It's what Jesus did. Overcoming evil with good. So when one commits evil against you. Sometimes it's best just to not respond. And I know all of you have been there. Sometimes it means you need to be proactive in being the bigger person by being filled with the Spirit. Eleven, it means paying attention to the needs of the people God puts in your path and looking for ways to help them bear their burdens. The people God puts in your path is not an accident. It's his strategy. It's his strategy. Twelfth, it means loving people in such a way that they never feel like they're in debt to you. you, Have you ever known those people, they do great stuff for you, but you feel like, oh my, uh, quid pro quo. (laughs) There's a, I scratch your back, now you're gonna scratch mine kind of thing. Um, We've all experienced that. Someone does something good for you, but you feel like there's strings attached. No, that's not the kind of gospel love we're talking about here. Two more. It means understanding the call to love is a call to both word and deed. Yes, there's a time where you say, I'll pray for you. But if you can add feet and hands to that prayer, that's the kind of love that I believe that we are being called to. And then finally, it it, it means daily remembering Jesus Christ being in awe of His gift, of His love, of laying down his life for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, for scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Perhaps for a good man, one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us that even while we were still sinners, in rebellion to him, hating him, Christ died for us. And Paul says, that's the path, that's the way that we're to follow as Christians, in Christ and by His Spirit. Imagine if we were committed to t- these two commands. It would change this community. it changed the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. It's hard. We thank you that our judgment is not gonna be rendered based on how well we obey these commands. It's already been rendered in the Son of God, the one who loved perfectly every moment of his life the one who loved his enemies more than we love our flesh and blood. The one who fulfilled all righteousness. And then the one who went to the cross and he gave himself up for us. For our redemptive good. And now, Lord, freed from the pressure to obey you, to secure your favor. As those who have been adopted Join heirs by your grace and resourced by your spirit, the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, fill us, grace us to be imitators of God as your dearly loved children. And to walk in this radical kind of love as Christ displayed ultimately in the laying down of his life. We ask these things In the name, the matchless name of our Savior, our example. Amen. As we adjourn today, let's speak these words of doxology uh, from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling